Good morning, church. If you haven't already, please turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6. For our guest, we are studying through the Lord's Prayer, and we are in, as Jacob said, the fifth petition today. Verse 12, on forgiveness. If you're taking notes, the title of my sermon is Forgiveness Received. Forgiveness Received. Matthew chapter 6, verse 12, but I'll begin reading in verse 7 and continue on through verse 15 so we get it in context. This is the Word of God. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them. For your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. May the Lord bless the preaching of His Word, although I do want to go to Him in prayer, so please join me in prayer. Our Father and gracious God, we thank You for this Word before us now, and we pray that Your Spirit would be at work in us and in our hearts to help us appreciate the forgiveness of our sins that we might turn and forgive others likewise. We pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Amen. That Jesus teaches us to pray in verse 11 and 12 like this, give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, means we need food and we need forgiveness every day. Verse 11 teaches us that we need daily bread that we might live. Verse 12 teaches us that we need daily forgiveness that we might not die. It's been said that forgiveness is the key to any relationship involving sinners. So if you plan to have a long and happy marriage, and I hope you do, if you plan to have friendships that you stick with for a long time, and I hope you do, if you plan on seeing your relatives more than once every other year, I hope you do. If you hope to work in the same place with many of the same people for any length of time, if you want to be happy in church, in this church, then you need forgiveness. You need to give it. You need to receive it. Forgiveness is the key to any relationship involving sinners. And what's true of our horizontal relationships is also true of our vertical relationship. What's true of our relationship with other people is also true of our relationship with God, only He is not a sinner. God never needs to be forgiven. It's a heresy to say, it's unorthodox to say, oh, we must forgive God, or I should forgive God for that. No, you should not forgive God for that. God does not sin. God does not need your forgiveness. We do not extend forgiveness to God, but we are sinners. 
And so if we hope to enjoy relating to our Father in heaven, we must come before him regularly to confess our sins, ask for forgiveness, and receive it. We will look at this fifth petition of Jesus' model prayer here in two obvious categories, spending the most time on the first one. The first is the forgiveness we receive from God. And then second will be the forgiveness we give to others. So first, the forgiveness we need to receive. The forgiveness we need to receive. Let me repeat what I said a minute ago. If Jesus teaches us to pray in verses 11 and 12, give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors, it stands to reason that we need God to both provide for us and pardon us every day. We need food and we need forgiveness every day. Now, Scripture defines or describes sin in various ways. Law-breaking, rebellion, pollution, offense, wickedness, missing the target, and many more. But the way Jesus describes it here is as debt. When we sin, we put ourselves into debt to God. We incur an obligation to God. We come to owing Him something. Now, in some churches, when the Lord's Prayer is recited, a slightly different wording is used. Forgive us our trespasses, as we have also forgiven those who trespass against us. This comes from the Book of Common Prayer, which, if you know your church history, comes out of the Anglican Church. So traditions that come out of Anglicanism, such as Episcopalians, Wesleyans, Methodists, all tend to use that phrase, trespasses. I remember attending some interdenominational meeting once where we were all supposed to be reciting the Lord's Prayer in this moment of prayerful unity. And it was this great experience of all our voices in one coming before God, praying to Him and petitioning Him until we got to this petition. And then all of a sudden, you know, chaos broke out in the room as some were shouting out debts and others were shouting out trespasses. And the guy next to me was mumbling, forgive us, because he didn't know what to say. So the question is, is which is right? Well, the word trespass is a fine word to describe sin. In fact, Jesus uses it, we already saw this in just a moment, verses 14 and 15. A trespass means crossing a boundary. I once saw a sign that read something like this, No trespassing. Property patrolled by a crazy woman with dogs and guns. Anyone found here at night will be found here in the morning. That was not a sign posted at at one of your homes, although I think it could have been for some of you. A trespass transgresses a boundary. It crosses a line. So God's law says, don't lie, but you lie. It says, don't let the sun go down on your anger, but you let the sun go down on your anger. Trespassing is going too far and is the word Jesus uses to describe sin in verses 14 and 15. But the word he uses in verse 12 is a different word. It means debts. Jesus is teaching us that every time we sin, we have not just transgressed, we have not just broken a rule, but we have also incurred a debt, an obligation, a liability. We owe God and we owe him big time. This prayer teaches us that every day of our lives, we live as debtors to God. 
Just as we need to ask every day for our daily bread, every day we need to ask God for his forgiveness. Now, out of all this, I want to draw three lessons out. I want to bring out three lessons that I think we can learn here. The first is this. The first lesson is this. Forgiveness is costly. Forgiveness is costly. Think about it in monetary terms for a minute. If I borrow and then lose a tool of yours, and that tool costs $50 to replace, then I owe a debt of $50. If you let me pay for replacing it, then you get your tool back, and I'm out 50 bucks. But if you forgive my debt, if you say, hey man, don't worry about it, then my debt doesn't just vanish into thin air. When you forgive me, you are choosing to absorb the cost of replacing that tool, or you are choosing the loss of having that tool. The point is, wherever there is a debt, someone has to pay it. Wherever there is a debt, someone has to pay it. You may want to put that in a letter and write it to them in Washington. Wherever there is a debt, someone has to pay it. Taking it up a notch further, let's say the tool I lost had been your grandfather's. It was your grandfather's, and he passed it to your father, who had passed it down to you. And I, being the schmuck that I am, lost it. This is a much costlier debt. Maybe I can buy you a new tool of the same kind for $50, and maybe the one I buy you can even be better than the one you had because it's a new tool, but it's still not your grandfather's tool. So forgiving me in this situation actually costs you more. It hurts more. The point to all this is there is no way of forgiving debt without suffering. There is no way of forgiving debt without suffering. Either I do or you do. Someone has to pay. Forgiving is always costly. And so when we ask God, when we ask God to forgive us our debts, we are not just asking him to take an eraser to our ledger. It'd be nice if it worked that way, but it doesn't work that way. When we ask God to forgive us our debts, we are asking him to suffer in our place. We are asking God to pay for our sin. And this is exactly what Jesus came in the world to do. God the Father pays for our forgiveness through the death of God the Son. And you who are dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. How? By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. That is Colossians 2, 13 and 14. These verses explain exactly how God forgave us our record of debt. He set it aside, we're told, <clears throat> excuse me, we're told by nailing it to the cross. In ancient times, when a debtor finally paid off his debts, a creditor would sometimes strike a nail through the certificate of, de of debt. And in the same way, Scripture teaches us that when Christ died on the cross, God drove not only nails through his hands and feet, but he also drew a nail right through our record of debt. 
At the cross, we are forgiven because at the cross, God suffered for us. He paid the moral debt we owed for the wages of sin is death. This passage is what inspired Horatius Spafford to write in his famous hymn, My sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin not in part but the whole is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh my soul. The debts we ask God to forgive when we pray the way Jesus taught us to pray are the very debts that were crucified with Christ at Calvary. At the cross, they were canceled, but not just erased, they were paid for in full, past, present, and future. To quote the hymn we sang already today, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, he washed it white as snow. At the cross, God forgave us because at the cross, God suffered for us. Forgiveness is always costly. This leads us to the second lesson we have here. The second lesson we need to learn here. Think about this. If Jesus has already secured our forgiveness... If at the cross he canceled the record of debt that stood against us, again, past, present, and future, then why does Jesus teach us to pray here for forgiveness? If God has already forgiven us all our sins once and for all through the death of Jesus Christ, then why do we need to keep on asking for his forgiveness? The, the answer lies in the fact that Jesus is teaching us to pray to God as our Father. This is a family prayer. This is a family communication. This is us talking to God as our Father, not talking to Him as our judge. After our record of debt has been nailed to the cross, our legal standing before God is secure. As judge, God has justified us. But we don't just have a legal standing before God. We have that. But not only that, we don't have just a legal standing before God as judge, we also have a living relationship with Him as our Father. And our sin, our daily sin, disrupts our fellowship with Him. It affects our relationship with God, just like sin affects every relationship we have. It's just no different. When my children do what they should not do, or when they fail to do what I've asked of them to do, on these very rare occasions when my children do such things, I don't want them fearing that they're going to be disowned. I don't want them fearing they're going to be booted out of the house, kicked out on the curb, unloved by their dad. But, Neither do I want them to think that just because that's true, just because they can be assured of my love, that their obedience is now not important. That when they wrong me, I don't want them to think it doesn't hurt me. It does affect me, and it does affect our relationship. And yet, if they acknowledge their sin, if they own it and apologize, then I am eager to forgive them. Understand this, Christian. You relate to God, not just as a judge, but as a father. 
One who is displeased when we disobey. One who is grieved by our sin. And yet one who, like the prodigal son's father, is eager to forgive us, eager to receive us, and is pleased with us even, our, our, even our faltering steps of obedience. Christians, ask for forgiveness again and again and again, not to be justified over and over and over again, but because we have a tendency to mess up the most important relationship in our life over and over and over again. And so we pray like this. Father, I'm so sorry for what I just did. Man, not only did I sin against them, I sinned against you. Please forgive me. And of course, God does, for he is eager to do so. This delivers us to a third and final lesson here that we need to study, we need to consider. It's more the application of it all, which is this. Christians must confess their sins. Christians must confess their sins to their Father in heaven. When we pray, forgive us our debts, we are admitting we are indebted. We are admitting we have sinned. Over in 1 John chapter 1, in verse 6, we are told we cannot walk in darkness and at the same time enjoy fellowship with God. We cannot do it. 1 John 1, 6. We cannot have our cake and eat it too. Sin disrupts our fellowship with God. Sin blocks the signal of our communication and relationship. But then in 1 John 1, 9, a couple verses later, in 1 John 1, 9, we're given a conditional statement. statement. If we do something, God will do something. And it is this, if we confess our sins, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. This is the same idea as is implied here in the Lord's Prayer. We have to be honest about our sins and the fresh debt that we daily incur. The Greek word John uses for confess, in 1 John 1 that we were just talking about, the, the Greek word John uses for confess is homologeo. Homologeo. Homo means the same. Logeo means to speak. So confession is to speak the same thing. To speak the same thing. Confession is to speak the same thing that God is saying about our sin. And if we say the same thing about our sin that God is saying about it, that means we are calling sin, sin. And when we do that, then God will do what he has promised to do, which is to forgive us our sin. We confess, he forgives. Only we must confess. Only we must call our sin, sin. And this is harder to do than it would appear. We are amazed, amazingly good at using all kinds of shifts and evasions to keep us from having to come clean to our Father in Heaven about our sin. Here are just a few of the ways we do it. We justify what we do. We justify what we do. It was just me treating them the way they are treating me. I was just telling how I see it. Well, no, I don't suppose it was very understanding, but I was just telling my wife the truth. We justify what we do. We excuse what we do. 
We excuse ourselves. We acknowledge it was wrong, but it all happened so fast, and besides, she started it. We excuse it. Yes, it was wrong, but they did this. Yes, it was wrong, but I had had a long day. An excuse is not a confession. We hide what we did. This happened in the Garden of Eden. God came looking for Adam and Eve, and they hid. Nobody knows what we did. Nobody's going to discover what we did. And so we're just going to keep it that way, hidden. But you know that when Adam and Eve hid from God, he didn't think that it was covered. He didn't think, oh, man, you know what? I just can't find them. I guess maybe they didn't sin. No, the hidden sin was still a sin. We acknowledge, another thing we do is, we acknowledge what we did, but we acknowledge it in vague terms. Lord, forgive me for being a little proud, I guess. Vagary is not a confession. We rename what we did. We say, well, I mean, everybody makes mistakes. Nobody's perfect. I mean, we, that's true. But when God calls it a sin and you call it a mistake, that's not a confession. When God calls it rebellion and you call it an error, an oops, a, a slip, that's not a confession. We shrug over what we did. We say, well, <laughs> but nobody's perfect. I mean, it's, it's not that bad. We give up over what we did. I'm just going to do it again. I'm just going to do it again. So what's it matter? We barter over what we did. Restitution seems too costly. We steal something from work, but we say, God, I can't confess that to my boss because if I do, I'll certainly lose face and I might lose my job. Or we say, I can't confess to my wife what I've been looking at online. She'll certainly be angry and she might kick me to the curb. What you're asking from me, God, is too costly. We pass the buck for what we did. We point the finger. God, it's the woman you gave me. She gave me the fruit. We postpone confession over what we did. I'll, come, I'll confess it tomorrow after I've cooled down. I'll confess it next Sunday before the Lord's Supper because I have to. We are overwhelmed by what we do. Nobody could forgive something that bad. If other people here at church knew what I did, they wouldn't have anything to do with me. And God is more holy than they are, so how can I bring this to Him? These are a few, and just a few, of the shifts and evasions we employ when we are trying to avoid confession, when we are trying to avoid simple and straightforward honesty with God. That we have sinned and we need forgiveness. So we shift and evade because we think, we think it would undo us if we own up, we think it would undo us to see ourselves the way God sees us. If the veil over our heart was truly torn away, if we're honest, we're afraid it would unravel us to admit that we're really as sinful as all that. But that is exactly what we need. The way we are needs to be unraveled. The way we are needs to be undone so that we can be remade. And here again, we are brought back to the gospel of God's grace. Back in Matthew chapter 3, a couple chapters ago, we studied how Jesus went through the humiliation of receiving a baptism of repentance. 
think about that. Why would he do that? John the Baptist came preparing the way of the Lord, and we're told all of Jerusalem, all of Judea, and all the region around the River Jordan were going out to him. There was this mass movement, there was this huge response. John is preaching to them about their sins, we're told, and they were in deep humiliation over their sin. They came to John, we're told, confessing their sin and receiving from him a baptism of repentance. And then one day, who should appear on the bank of the Jordan River but Jesus himself, the perfect one, the only only one that didn't need to come to this baptism party. It was a baptism of repentance and Jesus shows up to be baptized. And John is flummoxed. John is dumbfounded. He says, what? I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? And we're told John would have prevented him, but Jesus said, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Jesus is saying, John, salvation isn't just imputing my people sent to me so that I can die for them, but it's also imputing my righteousness to them so that they can be perfect in my Father's eyes. Salvation includes giving them my perfect record, including, John, perfect repentance. Jesus is saying, I am here to repent, not of my personal sin, but for my people's sin. And I'm here to identify with them in their sin, and I will repent perfectly for them. Even our repentance, Jesus performs for us perfectly for God. He fulfills all righteousness. Now, this does not mean that we do not need to repent. It does not mean that we do not have to confess our sins. We do. But it does mean we can confess imperfectly. Do you need to remember every single sin you've ever committed and confess it to God? Must you recall every single debt and apologize to God for it? No. Why? Because Jesus repented perfectly for you. You don't have to be perfect. You just have to do the best you can with the help the Holy Spirit gives you. Do you see how it just gives this net of grace underneath this? We don't have to be perfect repenters. We just have to be earnest repenters. Confess what you see. Acknowledge what you remember and receive full forgiveness, full and free. At risk of belaboring this point, uh, let me just say one more thing on it. The writer to the Hebrews warns us of what happens when we leave sin unattended in our lives. It starts to trip us up. It starts to get in the way. Therefore, he says, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Hebrews 12, verse 1. Here we learn sin clutters. Here we learn sin gets in the way. Here we learn sin weighs us down. Sin gets tangled around your feet. So we're told, don't run with it. Set it aside. 
and then run the race. Why? Because you can't run the race with a 200-pound backpack on. You can't run the race with, with snarls of rope tangled all around your feet. So, stop trying to act like a good Christian hiding unconfessed sin. Stop trying to act like a good Christian hiding your unconfessed sin. It just makes you more irritable than you already are. It just makes you more despondent than you already are. First, untangle yourself from sin. First, confess your debts. First, lay aside the sin and receive God's forgiveness. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, who could stand? But with you, there is forgiveness. Psalm 130, verses three and four. There is a forgiveness we need to receive every day. Now, there is a second half to this petition. And forgive us our debts as we, have, or we also have forgiven our debtors. So not only are we asking something of God, but unique to all these petitions, here we are expecting something of ourselves. There is a forgiveness we need to receive, but there is also a forgiveness we need to give. So point number two, the forgiveness we need to give. The forgiveness we need to give. I'm only gonna to touch on this subject briefly today, and then we'll pick it back up in a couple of weeks. And I'm doing that because I want a chance to devote a whole sermon to the subject of forgiving others. Uh, we'll do a deep dive in a couple of weeks. And there's a couple of reasons for that. One is because there is a lot of confusion around forgiveness, what it is and what it isn't. And unfortunately, a lot of us have a therapeutic notion of forgiveness more than we have a scriptural notion of forgiveness. And so we need uh, time, we need a chance to straighten all that out. A second reason why I want to, to wait and, and deal with this in greater detail in a couple weeks is because uh, some of you have been very deeply hurt by sin. All of us have been sinned against, but many of those sins are of the garden variety kind. Some of you have been sinned against egregiously. So heinously that you, that you barely have spoken to other people about it. Much less spoken much to yourself about it. And it would really not serve you if I rushed through a teaching on forgiving others. Um, I want this to be something that, that cares for you helps you, comes alongside you, and so we want to give unhurried to, that or to this topic in a couple weeks. But that being said, I will make two brief observations here today, two observations that can get us thinking about this and start priming the pumps for our study in a couple of weeks. The first observation is the more obvious of the two, and it's this, forgiven people forgive. Forgiven people forgive. Said another way, those who live by God's forgiveness will imitate it. Those who live by God's forgiveness will imitate it. One whose only hope is that God will not hold his faults against him will willingly forfeit his right to hold others' faults against them. Forgiving people forgive. 
And the opposite is also true. Unforgiving people, unforgiving people are unforgiven people. Unforgiving people are unforgiven people. This is the point Jesus stresses in verses 14 and 15. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. The significance of this needs to land on us, but we need to be careful not to misunderstand it. Jesus is not saying that our forgiveness merits God's forgiveness, that we earn his forgiveness by forgiving others. What Jesus is saying is that forgiving others is the fruit of our having been truly forgiven. Forgiven people forgive. Let me state it like this. A sheep bleats because it is a sheep. But you don't become a sheep by bleeding. <laughs> Does not a sheep make, necessarily. You don't see wolves giving lesson to other wolves about how to become sheep by teaching them how to bleat. It doesn't work that way. Likewise, an apple tree produces apples because it is an apple tree. But a bramble bush cannot become a an apple tree by growing apples. Said another way, a person drowning in a pool cannot rescue themselves by drying off at the bottom of the pool. It doesn't work that way. A rescued person will be dried off, but only after they've been rescued out of the pool. What am I saying in all this? I'm saying nature to nature. Forgiven people forgive, like to like. This is just how it works. Jesus teaches us, judge not and you will not be judged. Condemn not and you will not be condemned. Forgive and you will be forgiven. Luke 6, verse 37. Likewise, Paul teaches us, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Ephesians 4, 32. God has forgiven us, and so we forgive others. And this is so because God's, God saving us does not just cleanse us from the defilement of sin, but also liberates us from the power of sin to defile. And one of the central defilements of sin is the refusal to forgive others. Doing drugs is bad. Fornication is bad. Lying is bad. But it is a special design of Satan's, a special scheme of the enemy to keep us from forgiving one another. 2 Corinthians 2, 10 and 11. Paul writes, anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. It is the design of Satan to keep us from forgiving repentant sinners, from forgiving one another. And isn't it interesting that Jesus likewise follows this petition on forgiveness with a very similar request, keep us from temptation and deliver us from evil, or more literally, the evil one. So observation number one was the more obvious one in this passage, forgiven people forgive. Observation number two is shorter, but maybe more scandalous. Observation number two is shorter, but maybe more scandalous. It's this. Note the connection Jesus makes in verse 12. And forgive us our debts as 
we also have forgiven our debtors. Jesus has us ask God, in a manner of speaking, to follow our example in forgiving. I've never noticed that before this week. This is the first time I've seen it. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Here Jesus is teaching us to ask God to treat us in the same way we are treating others. Think about that. Are you comfortable then praying this prayer? Are you comfortable asking God to treat you the same way you are treating others? Later in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus teaches us, Judge not that you might not be judged, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. That's Matthew 7, 1 and 2. If this is how you want to treat people, if this is how you want to relate to others, hypercritical, counting every wrong, keeping a list, rarely releasing people from their debt, Jesus is saying, if that's how you want to relate to people, God can relate to you just like that. The rule is, do as you would be done by. The rule is, treat others the way you would be treated. In conclusion, I want to invite you into the goodness that comes from God, from the confession of sin, and particularly the confession of, of the sin of not forgiving others. I want to invite you into the goodness God has for you through a story a story I'm fond of. It's a story from C.S. Lewis's Voyage of the Dawn Treader around the character Eustace. Eustace, the boy who almost deserved that name, as C.S. Lewis says. A nasty little boy who's selfish, mean, quick-tempered, and unforgiving. At one point in the story, Eustace wanders into a cave filled with treasure. And he immediately decides that this treasure will make him rich, and with it, he can seek revenge on any and everyone who has ever slighted him. And so he puts on this gaudy gold bracelet, and he falls asleep on top of this treasure. And when he wakes up, he is found he has turned into a dragon. Lewis explains it like this, sleeping on a dragon's hoard with greedy, dragonish thoughts in his heart, he had become a dragon himself. At first, Eustace is excited about being the biggest thing around, but quickly he realizes that being a monster means he has to be cut off from all people. He has to be cut off from relationships. And as the weight of loneliness settles on him, he longs for nothing more than to turn back into a boy. Moreover, there's that pesky bracelet he had put on that's still on his arm, and now that he's a dragon, it's, it's the, his arm's too big, the bracelet's too small, and so it's tight and it's hurting him. And this is when Aslan comes into the scene. Aslan is the great Lion King who represents God in the story, and he takes Eustace to a pool that he says will ease his pain. Only first, Aslan said, you must undress. And this is just what God asks us to do. Elsewhere, Lewis wrote, we must lay before God what is in us, not what ought to be in us. We must confess our sins. So Eustace tries to peel off his dragon skin. He scratches at it, but no matter how many layers of dragon skin he manages to peel off, he remains a dragon. 
Until Eustace tells us what happens next, Aslan said, you will have to let me undress you. Eustace says, I was afraid of his claws, I can tell you, but I was pretty near desperate now, so I just lay flat down on my back to let him do it. The first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I have ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was just the pleasure of feeling the stuff peel off. Well, he peeled the beastly stuff right off, and there I was, as smooth and soft as a peeled switch and smaller than I had been. Then he caught hold of me. I didn't like that much, for I was very tender underneath now that I didn't have any skin, and he threw me into the water. It smarted like anything, but only for a moment. And after that, it became perfectly delicious, and as soon as I started swimming and splashing, I found that all the pain had gone from my arm, and then I saw why I'd turned into a boy again. And Lewis's note of narration at the end of the scene goes like this. It would be nice and fairly nearly true to say that from that time forth, Eustace was a different boy. To be strictly accurate, he began to be a different boy. He had relapses. There were still many days when he could be very tiresome, but most of those I shall not notice, for the cure had begun. This is a beautiful description of our salvation. When Jesus saves us from our sin, he frees us and transforms us. He makes us a new creation. But this is also a compelling picture of what confession of sin is like. The way we are saved is the way we keep living after we are saved. We bring our sin to God. We confess our debt to God. We confess that sin bracelet that clings so closely to us, and then we receive his forgiveness, letting God take it all away. There is, friends, there is nothing God cannot cleanse from your record. Friends, there is no debt that Jesus cannot pay. The question is, will you let him do that? Will you let him do that today? And for full disclosure, you'll have to part with your sin. You'll have to let it go. And it may hurt for a moment, especially the longer you've held on to it, the more a part of you it is. But it will only hurt for a moment. For the joy you will know in the fellowship renewed you have with God will far surpass the pain. There is a forgiveness we receive from God and we need to receive it daily. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we hear the call of your word that we are sinners in need of a savior. And we wanna respond to your word, God. We wanna come and say, yes, that's me, that's us. I am a sinner, I'm indebted to you, God. But we don't wanna just stop there, Lord. We wanna receive the promise of forgiveness. So God, here we are, Lord. Please forgive us. Take all our sins away. Renew within us a right heart. Restore our fellowship with you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
You want to...